everyone. We recorded our conversation in this episode about the European Soccer Super League on Tuesday morning before the news broke that teams were starting to pull out of the league. That certainly would have changed some of what we talked about on the show, but we still think it's a fun conversation about just how drastically a Super League would change soccer in Europe. So we hope you enjoy it. Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is April 20th, 2021, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor at 538. Joining me in New York City is senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi, Neil. Hi, Sarah. How's it going? How are you doing on this fine April morning? Oh, you know, I'm feeling good. It is April 20th, and uh, yeah, it's like we're almost a month into the baseball season, and those samples are starting to be marginally meaningful not really though (laughs) still small but better not for the Mets because they've had all but four games rained down (laughs) also the twins haven't played in like four days too uh Uh, that voice you hear is 538 contributor Jeff Foster hi Jeff hi Sarah how's it going you're missing watching the Mets play or are you grateful that the Mets are not playing I'm missing what do you mean (laughs) grateful I'm missing this this team is this is the this is the team this is of the destiny. Team. team of destiny. This is the yeah, year. Yeah. I've been waiting my whole life for this team, except except the first eight years of my life when I had the 86 Mets. <laughs> um, okay, so I wanted to take just a second to do a little bit of house of housekeeping. Uh-oh. As you know, I end each episode with a plea for listeners to review and rate the show because it helps new people discover the podcast, which is true and not just a thing I say uh, by rote every week. Also, though, I very badly do want to hear from listeners, so I check the reviews every week and, and delight in what people say. That is true even when the reviews are negative, as was the case with this one. Quote, one star, it's a golf podcast now. <laughs> I fell off the wagon on this podcast after they really hyper fixated on golf. Oh, no. I know. I blame Jeff. Yeah, I actually, I blame us for joking that it's a golf podcast now. (laughs) So this is really... Well, and I couldn't tell whether this was a joke or not, like playing into that uh, and and trying to kind of joke off of that. If it were five stars, I would say, yeah, that's a joke since it was an actual one star rating. I don't think we're going to be talking about golf for a while. I think that's true. And and I wanted to to just apologize directly to DSteel217, the lever of that review, and ask you to reconsider. And and maybe skip the podcast uh, the weeks around the golf majors. I don't you know, you know. <laughs> or, or the Masters, really. I mean, what are we going to talk about the PGA Championship? Come on. We might. <laughs> I want to. Yeah. <laughs> but listeners, do uh, review and rate us. I will read it. And then I will either feel really good or really bad about myself. So so those are, that's the power you hold, listeners. <laughs> On today's show, we'll talk about the news that 12 of the top clubs in Europe are forming a new Super League and what it means for soccer fans, besides yet another streaming subscription you'll need to buy. Then we'll look at the stretch run of the NBA season and check out on who's doing well and who has, at least, not been injured yet. Finally, we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. On Sunday, the world of soccer was rocked by the announcement that some of the biggest clubs in Europe are forming a Super League, not, unfortunately, to fight supervillains, but to play very lucrative soccer matches against one another. The owners of the proposed 20-team Super League spun it as a way to help fix what has been broken about the UEFA Champions League and take soccer to the next level. There are 12 breakaway clubs so far, three from Italy, Juventus, Inter Milan, and AC Milan, Three from Spain, Barcelona, Real Madrid, and Atletico Madrid. And six from England, Manchester City, Manchester United, Liverpool, Chelsea, Arsenal, and Tottenham Hotspur. Also, Spurs just fired head coach Josie Mourinho, finally, making him the first coach sacked in the Super League era. How exciting. The blowback to the Super League announcement has been swift and harsh. On Monday, UEFA president Alexander Shafarin called the breakaway owners snakes and promised that players on those clubs who play in the Super League will be banned from participating in the World Cup or the Euros. On Sky Sports Monday Night Football, former player and coach Gary Neville issued basically a call to arms to all English football fans, players and coaches to stop the Super League. They've created a monopoly, a closed shop 
a tournament where you're guaranteed to be in it. West Ham and Leicester in Champions League places. Forget it, they don't get into the Champions League anymore. Doesn't matter where they finish in the league. What's the point? They take away everything in this country, the pyramid, the sincerity of competition, the honesty and integrity of competition that we value. And they're taking it away. Yeah, we know that Manchester United have got more money. We know Liverpool have got more money. We know that Arsenal have got more money. We can live with that. There'll always be top clubs who have more money. But they can be beaten by Sheffield United at home. They can draw with Fulham. And they're trying to take that away to create franchise football. Never. It can never happen. I can't sit here and say to the players of Liverpool of Manchester United, go on strike. Because that wouldn't be right. But lads, if you've got it in you, you can stop this. You can mobilise. Jurgen Klopp can stop it. He's a man of integrity. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer can stop it. He's a man of integrity. They can all contribute to stopping it. And we must come together now because this is an attack by six wealthy families on the integrity of our national sport. And it must be stopped. So before we get into whether Jurgen Klopp can snap the Super League out of existence, Jeff, what do we know about how this league is supposed to work? Well, we don't know everything. Um, first of all, we don't know what teams will be in it. The, I think the most interesting, and honestly, I think what might be the um, the downfalls that these two German clubs that were supposed to be in it, uh, Borussia Dortmund and, and Bayern Munich, are, are seem like they aren't going to join. And Bayern Munich is the or one of the preeminent forces in Europe so it seems weird to have a super league without them and well, how PSG, about PSG? Uh, yeah exactly yeah PSG would be the other one that he's yet to join what we don't know is how where those other five spots will go presumably if this is going to be the thing that's kind of supplanting the Champions League uh much to UEFA's chagrin and many other chagrins um <laughs> You would think it would be a chance to get one of the smaller clubs a, a shot, but maybe not. I mean, it, it could be a rotating cast based on, like, how the leagues themselves play out. I mean, one thing that is known is that they are going to keep doing their domestic leagues in theory. Whether they'll care as much about domestic leagues is obviously another concern. Um, but it would be two divisions, and then it would be uh, the winners or the, the top I think it's the top four teams of those divisions would play in a playoffs that would take place around the same time the Champions League is usually winding down. So essentially, it's a new Champions League, but the teams always stay there like the NFL. They don't have to qualify for it. It's always the same group of elite teams. And the ramifications of that are widespread, which I'm sure we're going to get into, but uh, you can understand why those teams like it very much. And the team's not in it, don't like it at all, and the effects are, are wide-ranging. But the other thing is, like, I think the re the impetus for this, which is important, is that these teams want a bigger, you know, share of the money. And right now, the money is not going exactly to the teams in the Champions League. It's being distributed to the domestic leagues and, the, you know, the, the smaller clubs as well. And they're not too happy with that, considering they're the ones bringing in all those eyeballs and those advertising dollars and, and such. I saw a snap poll in um, in England, which I'm not. I can have no idea how the you know the the mechanics of this poll. Bad use of polling. Yeah, this might be a bad use of polling, but it had like 80 percent of people in England opposed to it, which um that's a lot. That's a pretty high number. We can't get 80 percent of Americans to agree on anything. So you know that it was kind of impressive, even if the poll wasn't great. <laughs> but the other 20 percent includes the owners of the 15 Super League teams. Well. And that's interesting because I think right now the the idea is that this is the fault of the American owners who have infiltrated the Premier League. So there's a lot of like blame America. Yeah. American bashing right now, which is sort of funny because I want to be like, guys, I hate American sports league owners, too. It's not me. Don't blame me. <laughs> blame the <laughs> blame the greedy people ruining all of sports. Um, yeah, I so there was a really great piece on Monday by Andy Staples of The Athletic comparing this super soccer league to the American college football super conference realignment of a few years ago. Neil, is that the right comparison for what these owners are trying to achieve? Putting the preface on this that 
I definitely know less about soccer than you guys and probably like 90% of our listeners, but I thought it really helped clarify for me. It did seem like a very apt comparison where it is a case of these historically popular of varying success levels, especially like right now clubs, but certainly teams that have had success in the past or are like brand names joining forces and feeling like, why should they have to compete to be in the college football playoff, why should you know? Why should they have to earn their spot uh, when when you have pesky little you know teams like Boise State and and various other you know teams not from major conferences or even less heralded teams from major conferences potentially usurping you? If you're a Nebraska, if you're a team that hasn't been relevant in years but still has a brand, why why not just? put yourself in this group of teams. And so um, what Andy Staples did in the story was he kind of speculated on, well, if college football did this, which would be the 15 teams? He said, prepare for many, many hurt feelings. <laughs> but his list of college football teams that would be in sort of comparable to this uh, situation with soccer would be Alabama, Auburn, Clemson, Florida, Georgia, LSU, Michigan. There you go, yes. Jeff. Nebraska, <laughs> Notre Dame, Ohio State, Oklahoma, Oregon, Penn State, Texas, and USC. And those would be the teams that would be fighting for the national championship or whatever the equivalent of uh, Champions League is. Uh, and so you'd have to, like, kick out Texas A&M. You'd kick out Florida State. There would be, like, a lot of, you know, controversy around who made it or who didn't. Tennessee would have made it a decade ago, but he said, but not anymore. So I think that that's pretty apt. I mean, especially with the case of Nebraska, it just, uh, like, stands out to me as being such a classic case of like a brand not necessarily a performing uh program and there are certainly comparisons to be made to that among teams in this super league and it does oh, come yeah. down to this idea of like it's it's the classic conundrum that we talk about with american sports which is like yeah it's better for like tv uh networks and for the leagues themselves when like the yankees are in the world series or when notre dame is in the college football playoff like there are certain teams that are going to draw a lot of eyeballs and have big fan bases and so like in your heart of hearts yeah maybe rob manfred is like i would prefer the yankee you know if you hooked him up to a lie detector or, or you know a truth <laughs> serum uh or something he would say yeah i would like the yankees to be in the world series but still they have to like earn that and this to me, from sort of an outsider to soccer, this does seem like a case of like a bunch of like Yankees or Notre Dame like teams trying to basically say like, hey, you guys want us to be in the final. More people will watch it uh, or in the playoffs at least. So where's the downside? Just let us be in the playoffs every year, regardless of how bad we are or how much we've or how little we've earned it. Yeah. And, and actually, I think there's there's more parity in college football. I mean, at least lately. I mean, you look at the, the semifinals of the Champions League and some of the teams that have made it in the last three years. I mean, Lyon from the French League. Rome from the Italian league and that's one of the major that's one of the major leagues and they're still not going to be in the super league and then you have like Ajax from the um Dutch league and and they made the semifinals a couple of years ago and that's a team that already has to jump through incredible hoops just to get to you know the last stages of the Champions League I mean the system is already rigged to sort of favor the English teams and the big in the Spanish teams in terms of the amount of spots they're guaranteed in the Champions League so like you you have already had, you know, countries and domestic leagues not happy with the way the Champions League structured. So, <laughs> I mean, this is like, we're not even going to give you a chance. The dream's dead. <laughs> and and yeah. honestly, I don't think fans are going to go for it. And they clearly are not going for it. Right. I think the Champions League is broken from both directions, right? It's broken for the the smaller the small market teams, I guess, the the teams that don't have as much money. But it is also broken for the top teams. I mean, nobody nobody wants to watch um, Manchester City just destroy some a minor team from a minor, you know, domestic league in, in Champions League. So those early rounds are just sort of like, they're already like, okay, let's just get through this. And so if, especially if, the, the system of promotion and relegation is not as personally important to you, which is probably true for the American owners because it's just not what we do. So it's, it's you know, not, not well known and well loved that like having Manchester City play Real Madrid twice every season for sure 
is is exciting. People will want to see that. That would be a huge event. Even people who hate this idea would watch that match. It's just true. And so you can see the that like if you're not thinking of it, this has like fundamentally destroying the fabric of 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 English soccer of you know the the way these the, the English pyramid as they talk about. Um then you know, you're just seeing it as as creating better matchups in these the, these midweek competitions while you're still you're still in the premier league you're still doing your thing there you're still beating burnley five to nothing but then you're also playing barcelona and you know the other team these other amazing teams midweek you can see how that is attractive it like sucks the joy out of soccer and like the then that's really true but the system right now isn't great i mean the problem, the thing that's great about promotion and relegation is that that keeps the competition pretty pretty good. You know, the level of competition is pretty equal below the Premier League because, you know, in like the championship, the best teams are going to move on, the worst teams are going to go down, and so you're going to have this roughly equal group. But in Premier League, there's nowhere to go. And so there's a certain point where you've bought all the players and you can't really, you're not going to go up. And so this is the up. Right. Um, that's I at least playing devil's advocate, I guess. That's the that's the theory behind it. But boy, it sure does destroy what what people love about the game, which uh, that's give it leave it to Americans. And you're also kind of doubling down on an existing problem, which is that these clubs are just going to get richer. But it's funny, like, uh, you know, it's we're talking about creating parity, but this whole the, the it sounds like from the perspective of those 15 clubs, they they think that there's too much parity, which is like ridiculous. How could anyone look at this and and say that there's too much parity um, and, and that, oh, well, we, we need to make sure that the best teams, the teams that spend the most or have the biggest brands always make it through to Champions League. I, I think it's really just money. I mean, look, they want a consistent influx of money, and I think they want a bigger chunk of the, the, the TV deal and a bigger chunk than they're getting in the Champions League. And frankly, this is this is a result of the pandemic. These teams were making a lot of money, but they were also spending a lot of money, and then they take a big hit, and they're kind of overexposed, and they, they take a loss, and I think this is a way to sort of give them the consistency that an NFL team will get regardless of its performance because of the, you know, the way the revenue is shared. And they, they, I think they just want that sort of steady flow of cash coming in. And they're not seeing that to the degree that I think is possible, at least in their eyes. Yeah, the seed money going into the Super League is like just bonkers. It's so it's so much more money than than anyone's getting with any of the other setups any you know uh, with champions league with the premier league it's just it's wild and that i mean that money will just perpetuate their these teams you know staying on top which is what they want obviously whether that's good for good for soccer is another question but the the ban the most interesting thing to me and i i do think uefa and in fifa the ban from the tournaments the world cup and the euro is really interesting because i, I mean that really puts the players in an awkward spot in their decision making, um, if, if that's for real. But also, the ramifications for that are terrible. Like, look how much that'll affect the U.S. won't be able to play with Pulisic because he's on Chelsea, or or you know these other countries that have like one star. You know, like Senegal can't um, play with Sadio Mane because he's on a, one of these Super League teams. I mean, that that would really affect. A lot of soccer fans. I mean, the reach of this or the implications of this, if that were to happen, are, are sort of perplexing. So, I mean, will will FIFA and UEFA, you know, go follow through with that? Will they do? You, I mean, what are the odds that that actually happens? Do you think? It's hard to tell. I mean, it's it's ugly right now. It certainly seems like something that they would. It, it, from the talk that they have said, it sounds like that is like maybe a link that that, that they are thinking about going to because, like you said, Sarah. The announcement that this was even possibly going to happen felt like such a breach of sort of the mutually assured, 
cash making, whatever you want to call it, that they had kind of reached, that this is seen as such a violation that, especially with UEFA, aren't they being sort of cut out as like, they're a middleman right now. The Champions League is almost being replaced with this Super League. So like, it's kind of existential to them and seems like when people have threats that are existential, they go to like super drastic lengths to try to kind of stop that from happening. Well, they have public opinion on their side, right? I mean, fans yeah. hate this. They hate the they irony hate that UEFA <laughs> There's just no, no, the good guys. The good guys yeah. for the people. Yeah, you know, politics and uh, soccer leagues make strange bedfellows, I guess. Uh, fans and UEFA band together to stop yeah. uh, the American owners of the Big Six. I don't think it's going to happen. To be honest, I, I think that the, the fact that the German clubs have yet to join, I think it's very significant because I don't think they can do it. With, I mean, Bayern Munich's a reigning champion. Like, it, it just doesn't make sense without them. So either they fold. It doesn't seem like they want to fold. Um, or I think the thing falls apart. Yeah, I, I mean, you could definitely see a compromise that that changes the payout structure from Champions League that that then the the Super League teams. I do wonder if there will be fallout from this though about with those teams for just even for even if it doesn't happen but even for proposing it that I mean I feel like fans feel betrayed right now in a Yeah, agreed. And the organizing bodies feel betrayed when they're the ones that have the power to levy consequences. All right. Well, it will be interesting to see what happens with this at whether the Super League actually happens or not and and how it shapes up if it does. I think we can leave this here for now. We'll take a break and then come back to talk about the NBA. So it's been a minute since we checked in on the NBA. We have only about a month left in the regular season, but everyone is hurt. <laughs> That's not exactly true. Now now that the Sixers have Joel Embiid back, they are thriving in the East, though they, they did lose Monday night with both Ben Simmons and Tobias Harris out because, of course, the Suns are having an incredible season too, and the Clippers have been consistently dangerous. But it feels like the big story out of the NBA this year is the number of injuries. On the Ringer's The Mismatch podcast, Chris Vernon talked about the injury rate in the league and what makes this year so unusual. League data shows that player injury rate this season is down about 6%, um, even though, and I think this is a, a major point, several marquee players, including LeBron James, Anthony Davis, Kevin Durant, Joel Embiid, James Harden, and most recently, Jamal Murray, have dealt with injuries in the recent weeks. Also, and I do think that that is a big part of this, Kev, is that it's it's who got injured this year that is is making this a huge topic. And it, look, I just named all these stars. Think about that. We guess what? We also lost the rookie of the year, and we lost the second pick in the draft. Yeah, in James Webb. So yeah. I mean, it's not like we've lost the superstars and the big time rookies. Neil, why do you? think that injuries have been so devastating for these marquee players in particular does does the overall injury rate matter more or less than having LeBron and Durant out well I think the stars matter more obviously um and I think it's kind of one of the mysteries that the the NBA's official number like they mentioned in the take was that injuries were not notably up this year because Obviously, anecdotally, it makes us feel that way because so many stars are out. Also, just you would expect it to be that way because uh, they're just playing more games in sort of a more compressed uh, period of time. So, for instance, uh, ESPN's Tim McMahon crunched the numbers on this, and he found that the average number of games per week per team last year was 3.42. This year, it's 3.6 overall, and after the All-Star break, it's 3.75 because a lot of teams, you know, have had to kind of make up games because they missed early in the season with COVID issues. Uh, and so you would think that that wear and tear, especially for a league that's so obsessed with load management and has been for years, that that would cause these injuries. And there's also data that uh, All-Stars are missing more time. That part is actually real. There was a stat from the Elias Sports Bureau that said that All-Stars have missed 15% of games this season which is on pace to be the second highest rate in NBA history the only season that was higher was 2015 where 16.8% of 
All-Stars miss 16.8% of games. So I do think that it's sort of like, yeah, maybe that overall number has not necessarily notably gone up, but it is the the impact of the injuries, maybe the impact of the average injury has been higher because it's been better players. Uh, and just in general, I think even when players aren't missing time because of injury, they can feel the the impact of the increased workload and, and having to play more often. The injuries to the big stars obviously have implications for for the MVP race too. Jeff can Embiid make a case for himself now that he's back, do you think? Or or will, you know, Nikola Jokic win as kind of the last man standing? It sort of seems that way. You just look at the sports books right now and Jokic is in overwhelming favorite. I mean, I think he's minus 350 um, on the money line, which is, you know, less than even money, whereas uh, Embiid is three and a half to one plus 350. So that's pretty far discrepancy. That looks like a runaway, especially I think by NBA MVP standards. And it really, I think it really just comes down to playing time. I mean, if Embiid had been doing this all year and hadn't missed the games he had, I, I, I actually think Embiid would be running away with it. And Jokic has been, you know, his numbers are incredible also, um, averaging you know 26 points, 11 rebounds, and a ridiculous shooting percentage. So he's been steady. It does feel like it was Embiid's MVP year, and the injury did kind of cost it to him. I mean, he would have to go, I think, just thermonuclear for the rest of the the rest of the year, which, which honestly he might do, um, to win it. But, you know, frankly, if it was my vote, I, I feel like Steph Curry is making a pretty good case for it. The way he's been playing, which is just astronomical in terms of his numbers and in terms of importance to a team, I think it's without a doubt, Curry is the most, I mean, GSW could be the worst team in the league without Curry on the court. And well, now they're like they, they certainly oh, were we last, saw that year, yeah. last year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And no, but even this roster, uh, and and they're a borderline playoff team. And you look what he's doing. You know, just these you know absurd stat lines every night. To me, that is the most valuable player by definition. But I know this is an old argument. I don't want to get into this argument that you have to be on a good team to be most valuable. This old saw. But um, that that would be in terms of the me the the most important and the best player in the league, without a doubt. And yes, since this is uh, this is hot takedown, we'd be remiss if we did not point out that Jokic is also leading in Raptor wins above <laughs> replacement. Yes, uh, and I think just generally Raptor, um, he he's the best player in the league there. So um, yeah, but I mean Curry is zooming up that for sure. Um, and I don't know. Yeah, we'll get to see Jokic. Um, to carry this team I mean he already was co-carrying it to a certain extent but now it's really like on him uh and I don't know uh it, it's it's unfortunate that that injury happened uh, just such a such a turn of the narrative for that team and, and the season that they were having to now sort of be like oh well, they're they're going into the playoffs, and that's another Jamal Murray is another one of those injuries on that list of all stars that we were just talking yeah. about. It was interesting to see James Harden, who like was making his own MVP push, which was hilarious, by the way. Not that, yeah. that not that it was like wrong necessary. I mean, he was playing great, but also I don't think you should be able you should be eligible to win the MVP if you sandbagged it with your first team <laughs> in the first quarter or whatever yeah. it was of the season <laughs> to get traded and then go to a super team and then play and be like, "Oh yeah, I'm really great at basketball again." Isn't that funny Weird. how that works? Yeah. Yeah. Look, yeah, how strange. You, that's the Vince Carter to um uh to the Nets. Also, also to the Nets, uh, ironically enough. Nets? Yeah, um, m- <laughs> memorial uh, MVP plan or whatever. But I feel like we were like less okay with it in, in 2005 or whenever it was. Kids these days, so soft, you know, they'll just <laughs> let people get away with that for the MVP combo now. I mean, it always felt very unlikely to me that he would actually win. He was playing. Yeah, I, I, I mean, think I, so. I feel like voters are vindictive enough that that wasn't going to happen. Good, they should be. I, hey, I agree. <laughs> Our, our model has the Clippers up at the top still. That they seem to be going a little bit 
under the radar, which is weird to say about a, a, t- a team based in L.A. that has Kawhi Leonard on it. But I wonder if they're being discounted because they've been tagged as a little um, uh, unreliable in the postseason. That that does happen when you blow a 3-1 series league. Which time? Yeah, right. Sorry. I um, have to be more specific. Jeff, why are the expectations different for L.A.'s other other team than they are for, say, Denver or Utah? I think part of it is that kind of big brother syndrome you see in L.A. I mean, you know, if the Lakers were terrible, um, it, I think it would be a different story. It's it, You see this all the time in sports. I mean, I think this happens with the Mets and the Yankees all the time, that if the both teams are good, you still kind of forget about the little brother of the two. Um, and I think that's happening for sure this year, even with L.A., Lakers. See, I just called them LA, so I, I, I proved my point right there. Um, <laughs> even with uh, James and Davis being injured, they're still very much relevant. So I, I think that's part of it. And I think the collapse last year just certainly has to do with it. That that was a pretty high-profile collapse, and <laughs> I don't think people have forgotten about it. But I, I certainly think it, it shouldn't mean anything going into this playoffs. Uh, <laughs> but at the end of the day, they're the Clippers. And I think the baggage that comes with just being the Clippers is enough to make them a little bit of an afterthought. But I think certainly the, the two L.A. teams thing is, is probably the bigger factor. And also, you know, this is true with the West Coast. I think there's this happened with the Warriors when they people forget this. But when the Warriors, you know, first started their their dynasty, these West Coast teams, they tend to often get you know, because the games are so late, they tend to be a little bit overlooked. I, I mean, I don't know if that's true with LeBron James teams, but I think it's certainly true that a lot of the basketball-watching public has not seen them as much, and you tend to kind of forget about them. I think that's probably true, honestly. I mean, you, you know, I think people, like, yes, know that there is a Kawhi Leonard-Paul George team in L.A., <laughs> but they, like, don't see them. And so they don't realize how good this team actually is. And then the, like... The you know the losing in the in the playoffs like reinforces the opinion that you don't you forget that they're there you know it'll it'll be very interesting to see two teams that collapsed. In yeah, I mean Utah did the same year. thing, yeah. and no one seems to be talking about that. Yeah, and that's weird. Yeah, I feel like you know I I want the the expectations on Utah are so different and and strange, but also they they fly well under the radar, probably farther under the radar than the Clippers. So. Yeah, there's there's just a weird bias in basketball. It's it's really funny to to try to figure out. Yeah, and some of it is also like just among teams that have not won championships before or you know, were not considered to be in that conversation. I think that maybe more so in the NBA than any other sport. We just have like a lot of biases against teams until they prove that they like can win a championship. And then all of a sudden it's like, Oh yeah, of course the jazz all along, we knew they would be, you know, uh, it's so funny to think about like teams that joined that club and, and it totally flipped the switch of how we think about them. Like the Spurs in starting in 1999, they went from a team that like couldn't get over the hump in the playoffs and lost to the Houston Rockets, Hakeem Olajuwon and all that to like, oh, they're a dynasty, you know, and and a little bit of that with the Heat also before versus after 2006. And yes, they did get LeBron James and formed their big <laughs> that, three that uh, at that point. But it, I think it, it, we're just inherently, I think, in the NBA more than other sports going to be skeptical of teams. Whereas like, you know, when the Kansas City Chiefs emerge as this powerhouse with Mahomes, it didn't seem to matter quite as much that like the Chiefs hadn't won since the 70s at that point where we were just like, oh, yeah, they have the best quarterback. So eventually they're going to win. But we can't quite make that leap in the NBA. And it probably speaks to the fact that, yeah, there is this history of like teams don't break into the championship, the first time championship club or the longtime championship drought club like the Bucks. you know, have they have yeah. won in the past. But it's, you know, were any of us alive when that happened? Uh, I don't think so. And I think it's that the best teams are going to win more often in the NBA, whereas the one off NFL playoff games that there are it's it's a little flukier. And so a team that's not dominant can win. 
Um, and teams that have been dominant in the regular season, even for multiple years, can lose in fluky ways. That just doesn't happen as much in the NBA. You really have to have sustained excellence, which often manifests itself over several years, like with the dynasties we've seen. And maybe the Jazz are a good example of that this year, of also why we don't take them as seriously. Is It's almost like a, seen as a bad thing to have like a great regular season like they're having this year. And we've seen Milwaukee rattle off you know, uh, seasons like that in the past too, where it's almost like it, it's almost seen as like a negative against them to have that great regular season in some ways. It like means they don't have stars that they've had to rest. <laughs> like, yes, like they, no, that is, like, part of it. I think that is part yeah. of it. Yeah. You, you didn't load manage enough because <laughs> right. none of your guys are like load right. manage, load manageable. <laughs> right. Exactly. They don't have to rest. They, you know, you're not trying to conserve them. So yeah, that is really funny. But then again, none of the top competitors have won a championship. I mean, the, Phoenix this year yeah like the top yeah this year year. Milwaukee even like going down a little further you know Atlanta and Denver like you have to go pretty far to find a team that has a recent championship and among the the sort of elite this year yeah Philly hasn't won since what 83 I mean the Lakers are the the one exception there right right (laughs) but they're you know the five seed right now Sure, although we have them, I think we have them fifth um, overall. I mean, a lot of that. I mean, people are, you know, obviously there's a a huge injury factor in in that case. Yeah, definitely. No, you know, Neil wrote a a fun story earlier this season about the 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 number of um, potential first time winners or or winners who hadn't won in a long time. And I think that'll be that'll be such a fun thing if we get, you know, I mean, the league will hate it if we get a jazz. I don't know. What's the what's the jazz bucks final? The league would hate that quite a bit. I think it'd be great. Um, yeah. I mean, what's the word? I guess me jazz. Yeah. Jazz bucks probably would be the, the worst case scenario for them. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Are we not going to talk with the Knicks? I, I guess we're not going to talk about the hottest team in basketball. Won six in a row right now. Knicks. home court in the playoffs i mean come on we have to at least recognize that this is a little bit shocking speaking what did we have them <laughs> speaking of teams that have done nothing lately <laughs> Knicks fans are unbelievable <laughs> but it is a surprise i mean you look at what did we have them to make the playoffs 538 before the season five percent and now they're at 75 percent. so it is it is a story you have to admit that it is a story, and it's a great story. I mean, the Knicks are the Knicks are are having a one really wonderful season. Does anyone think that they're going to? How far do you think they're going to go, Jeff? I think they could win a round. Why not? Around. Yeah, yeah. That's I mean, Julius Randle is while not in the MVP conversation, he's on the board. He's got odds. He's probably the long <laughs> the, the biggest long shot that they're taking bets on. So he, it is a pretty remarkable season what he's doing in terms of the consistency and, and the sheer number of minutes he's played. Um, classic Tibbs grinding his players down. Till <laughs> yeah. <left>. Hey, that, <laughs> that is the point of having Tibbs. Yeah. That's what you're going yeah, for. But when he, you hire him. Tibbs will probably win coach of the year. I mean, that feels like he has to be the favorite in that just does, in terms of expectation versus end result. Does Tibbs have the shortest average amount of time between winning coach of the year and being fired? Like over his career, <laughs> for, for all his players being broken down for over years. Yeah. Yikes! Um, all right, I'm sorry I did not bring up the Knicks. I apologize. I had to, to get it in there, <laughs> just while the winning streak is alive. Yeah, yeah, and we and we all saw you know Zion Williamson gush about New York being the mecca of basketball and how he loved playing there. So you know, I do think that this is like this is a big like month. For the Knicks, mm. big week, you know, yeah. it's 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 a big moment for them. What was great about that Zion, the the takes after Zion said that, it we like skipped even the initial like, oh man, Zion really likes playing here. Does that mean he's gonna you know try to come to the Knicks? And we went right to the like. Knicks fans are overreacting about Zion. Like, we didn't even get the first reaction. It went straight (laughs) to... That was just assumed. (laughs) Yeah, it was amazing. Um, Those kind of uh, hot takes are actually my favorite hot takes. (laughs) All right, well, on the Knicks note, I think we can leave this here for now. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back for our rabbit hole of the week. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. 
Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of those descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. Take it away, Neil. Yeah, so we wanted to highlight a story that uh, we ran on the site last week that I sort of co-wrote, helped with, but a lot of the work was done by Justin Moore. He is a software engineer at Google by day, but also a uh, really great football and auto racing analyst by night. So uh, he and I had worked together a few years ago on Formula One ELO ratings, which I'm sure some listeners will remember, we we rolled out and did a whole kind of interactive off of that where we were, you know, analyzing the best drivers, the best peaks that drivers had over time. And one of the flaws of that system was we kind of treated drivers as like drivers and teams as like one entity together. Uh, and we gave the driver all the credit. Of course, they're the ones who are in the car, they're driving it, they, um, they get all the, the glory. But we realized in more research that that we had been doing since then that the 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 team makes a lot of difference to a driver's performance i know this is not a surprise to anyone who's actually a, a fan of formula one but that it was a little reductive to kind of compare drivers and go off of that for for rankings so what justin did is he took a deep dive into the the numbers since then and created these kind of parallel tracks of elo ratings where now we track not just the driver's rating, but also the team's rating, sort of independent of each other and try to figure out, uh, because Formula One gives us a lot of nice natural experiments with two drivers in the modern era, at least on the same team, where we can sort of compare their performances and try to control for the team. And dr drivers change teams from season to season. And there's all kinds of ways that we can try to isolate performance of driver versus performance of team. The other thing that we put into the model now is a way to account for reliability. So the other kind of complaint about our system back in the day was that we didn't really ding drivers for not finishing races. We just sort of kind of just didn't consider those <laughs> results as having happened, which of course privileged drivers that maybe had a more reckless style. So they were very boomer bus drivers. They would either finish first and look really great because they got credit for that in the model, or they would crash out in a blaze of glory and they didn't really get blamed for that. So now we have not just an ELO rating for drivers that sort of looks at their speed head to head against other drivers when they finish a race, but also try tries to figure out what are the odds of them finishing a race and give drivers credit, but also try to also account for teams. So it's another case of parallel tracks for um, reliability ratings. So all of that being said, we rolled out this model in a story on the site last week and had kind of been targeting early in the Formula One season to look at it. And the, the big question was, does the driver or the car matter more? And the answer to that is it depends on the era. So one of the interesting things that we found was that in the early days of Formula One, the difference in driver skill was really kind of vast. And a driver could sort of take a team that may have been an inferior quality team and sort of, you know, single-handedly power that team to victory because there, there were drivers that were just so much better than other drivers on the grid. However, that mix between driver and car in terms of what is best predictive for future races has tilted in favor of teams somewhat dramatically, I would say, in recent years. And that's borne out by, this is not a surprise to anyone who follows Formula One, that you, know, you have Lewis Hamilton, who's a fabulous driver um, and is on the verge of potentially winning he, he tied the all-time record for most championships last year. He could pull ahead and, and get the record this year. I think he also had the record for most races won and all kinds of things like that. But of course, his team Mercedes frequently locks out the top two on the grid. You know, his he, he does seem to be driving with better technology and a better team and, and a better car than everyone else on the grid as well. And so finally, we were able to kind of quantify that. And one of the things that sort of fell out of that in our research looking ahead to this year and sort of looking at the early results this year is that the Mercedes advantage was massive over any other team in the field uh, and particularly over the average team last year. But if you take away that and just look at the drivers, this guy Max Verstappen, who is the driver for Red Bull, uh, their lead driver, actually had a better driving season last season 
season than than Lewis Hamilton did, despite the fact that Hamilton won the championship, and of course Mercedes won the uh, the the constructors championship by quite uh, a significant margin, and we would really predict that if you put them in equal equipment. Verstappen would win head-to-head more often than not, particularly in qualifying, which is another aspect that is broken out versus races, is that pure speed matters more in qualifying, whereas the reliability factor matters more in races. And we should say Lewis Hamilton, maybe one of the underrated aspects of his uh, record-chasing career, is that he is super duper reliable. So in in our ratings through uh, the first week of the season, so not including the most recent race at Imola, that Hamilton by himself, uh, according to his driver reliability score, would have a 98.6% chance of finishing sort of a generic 300-kilometer race. The average among drivers in the field is 96%, and the lowest you know quarter of them uh, would be expected to finish 93, 94% of races. So over the course of a whole season, he has like a 99% chance of finishing each race. Other drivers really only have like a 95, 96% chance or less. That adds up. And that's why he had not, even this past weekend, he had sort of a miscue where he, uh, it was wet conditions. He kind of slid off into the gravel and he was able to get back on the track and actually fight his way back from, I think he was in ninth after that incident, all the way back up to second behind Verstappen uh, before the end of the race. But it just spoke to, you know, one of the, one I think underrated ways that he has been great over the course of his career is this ability to finish races. And one of the virtues of being able able to tease out driver reliability versus team reliability is that we can actually find the effect of drivers on their ability to finish races and isolate that sort of independent from teams. And there is a lot of variance there. Uh, Like I had mentioned, Lewis Hamilton, 98.6% reliability. Well, Charles Leclerc of Ferrari, he's one of the fastest drivers conditional on finishing the race. I think he's like, he's only behind Verstappen and Hamilton in that regard, but he only has a 92.1% chance of finishing a generic race. And so that I think gives us another way to look at teams and sort of like where they're falling short or where they're gaining advantages is, is it in speed? Is it in reliability? Is it in the team? Is it in the driver? There, There's a lot of ways that you can kind of slice and dice this data. But what we also thought was really interesting is that we had predicted that Verstappen, based on that performance last year and the fact that he had sort of surpassed Hamilton in terms of pure speed, would be a great harbinger of of his season going into this year that if Red Bull was able to uh, close the gap in team performance, you know, car performance, or even reliability against Mercedes just a little bit, he would become the favorite to win the championship this year. And in the first two races of the season so far, we saw it really kind of play out in that sort of duel between Hamilton and Verstappen, where in the first race, Verstappen had a chance to pass Hamilton in the closing laps. He briefly did, but then had to give back the position because he uh, he was afraid that he would be um, penalized by the end of the race for uh, exceeding track limits. And then he wasn't quite able to make another run and pass him and Hamilton won the race but it was like such a microcosm of what our model thought the whole season would be about which is Hamilton desperately trying to fend off Verstappen who is now probably you know he's younger he's he's probably a better driver in terms of pure speed at this point and then in the second race Verstappen won and held off Hamilton it wasn't nearly as uh, dramatic at the end because Hamilton had had the uh, the issue his teammate Valtteri Bottas actually got into a massive crash and that was another way in which the Mercedes reliability score will go down after that race because one of their drivers did not finish the race. So I I do think that this sort of tipped us off to the fact that it was going to be a really exciting Formula One season, at least between those top two drivers all year. It looks like that's going to be the the headline battle. And this isn't a sport that kind of desperately needs that type of rivalry, that type of like legitimate challenger. Mercedes has dominated so thoroughly uh, over the past almost a decade that they they really have in some ways sucked all the parody. We talked about parody in, um, in, in soccer in international soccer well there is like 
no parity in Formula One uh, when you have one of these teams that has like a huge advantage mechanically and in terms of driver talent on the rest of the field. So it's nice to see Mercedes actually have a challenger that, that could take them down. And it's also nice to have numbers to kind of put behind that. Just shout out to Justin. I, I, if he's listening, I know he's sometimes is a listener to the show. This is one of my favorite things about 538, about taking what, we, what we've seen, what we've done so far, and then trying to build it onto it when we see the problems or see things that we weren't thinking of already, right? And the reliability thing is huge because the whether you finish a race is really important. <laughs> and like and we and we just didn't have a way to work that in the first time. And so I love the reliability score. I think that's such an improvement to the model that will that will really make it more true to what's really happening on on the track i i'm gonna preface this question by saying i know little of f1 but <laughs> i prefaced the soccer thing by saying the yes thing about soccer, <laughs> so arguably okay. know less about f1 than you know about <laughs> soccer but that's a, that's a question for another time isn't there some cases though where even within the team the the sort of non-top driver on the team has there's been speculation that they're not getting as good of a car. Like, how do you separate that? Yeah, and that's a little bit tough to to tease out because we are sort of assuming that the teams, at least two drivers on the same team, are supplied with the same kind of car-based boost. I don't know that there's any way to do that, but you're totally right that that is like... <laughs> There's so much drama around that. And I just love somebody. Somebody tweeted out that Formula One is like the real housewives with uh, with <laughs> hybrid engines. And it is so true. Like you're really you're watching for, yes, the the driving and especially like, yeah, the start to the race is always like just totally insane and there's all kinds of like wrecks and stuff but then once they settle into a groove like yeah some uh there there will be like decisions around the pit stops and like tire changes and stuff like that that determine you know whether it's going to be close at the end but a lot of it's like uh when when you have mercedes kind of finishing so uh so strongly it gets boring but then you get the drivers having to like who hate each other, by the way, and they have long-standing beefs across <laughs> many years over uh, slights, both real and perceived, mm-hmm. uh, having to stand in the same room as each other and awkwardly drink, uh, you know, bottled water and like, do they look at each other? Do they make eye contact with each other? Oftentimes not, especially if they've had um, like an incident on the track recently in that race and then they have to kind of come in there and like, uh, it's it's just so much drama. So I think it's like, it's a great reality show that sort of just happens to sometimes have guys driving cars in (laughs) uh it is definitely it is yeah one of the biggest soap operas in in sports which uh which hey love that all right well listeners can go to 538 and see uh that story and read more about the model and the improvements made to it and and yeah and follow the formula one season all year all right that will do it for this week's show we'll be back in your feed next tuesday If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And again, if you are subscribed, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. I will read them and uh, and, and cherish every review. Someone will say, oh, this has turned into a soccer podcast now. (laughs) Soccer driving a whole thing. Soccer and F1. Yeah. Is that better? Is that what you wanted? (laughs) (laughs) You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Allen. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.